Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Grab a seat. How are we doing this morning? All right, guys. Welcome to Crossroads and another 90-degree fall day in Texas. So excited to be here. We just got done with a series on Daniel. and I'm going to give you a big-picture view of where we're going from now till Christmas because it's been up at Hobby Lobby for four months, okay? Um, so we just got done with Daniel, and we're going to dive into eight weeks on Colossians 1, just the first chapter. I told my wife, we're going to be at eight weeks on Colossians. She said the book. I said the first chapter. She looked at me like, that's your call, you know? Um, And here's what we're going to do with it. So I I love Colossians 1, and we're going to break it into two separate sermon series because the tenure and tone of his his letter to the church at Colossae kind of shifts. And what Paul is doing, if you didn't know this, little New Testament trivia for you, the New Testament mainly is, is made up of a lot of letters written to different churches because the church just started. And they really were just trying to figure out what they were doing. They didn't have Google and they didn't have YouTube Bible version apps. They didn't have all these things that we have. They barely had all the Old Testament scriptures, not to say they didn't have the New Testament scriptures and they need some help. And so Paul spends a lot of his time writing letters to people he's met and to people like our text today that he's never met saying, this is what we know about Jesus. Can you imagine, we have all these books to pick from. Can you imagine being the church in Colossae? You you probably didn't really have any. Paul writes you a letter, and you spend the next years just reading that again and again and again. So if anybody tells me we've taught on this before, just think about what happened in the first church. It's good for you, you know? And so we're going to spend the first four weeks talking about Paul's idea for how the church influences the people that make up the church. And then after that, we get into a really beautiful section, probably the richest Christology, ideas on who Jesus is in all of the New Testament. That'll take four weeks. And then we're going to segue into Christmas. So the idea is that we talk about how we are, as we show up, influenced by this idea of what the church is, how Jesus goes before us, and we build up a strong case for the supremacy of Christ. And then that transfers in, that weight pushes into Christmas, because this same God, this same Jesus, who has all these beautiful things talked about in verse 15 and on in chapter 1, decided to become a baby. I live with the baby. I don't know who would make that decision, all right? Especially if you're God. 50% of the time, her battle is banana in my mouth or on my forehead. This is what God chose to do for us, you know? So we're going to take some time and talk about the beauty of Christ as it translates into the Advent season. But today we start on this idea of the local church. Because Paul writes to this, and we're going to talk more about the specifics of Colossae next week. So if you like history, show up. But he writes this small, dying church in the middle of two other big cities, one that a time has seemingly forgotten. And he says some things in the first 14 verses on his hopes and his dreams and his prayers for how they might be influenced when they gather together. It's beautiful. A couple years ago, a research group said, polled Americans, and they said, of of the Americans that go to church, I think they set the bar relatively low, once or twice a month. Um, I'm here every week. Once or twice a month, they said, hey, simple question, why do you go to church? If somebody stopped you and said, why do you go to church, what would you say? I think we have a graphic. You're not going to be able to read it, but I'll read it to you. Um, Essentially, 
There was all these different answers given. The number one answer, 81% said, I go to church to become closer to God. 69% said, so my children will have a moral foundation. All that really means is my kids will listen when I tell them to do things. Uh, 68% said, I want to be a better person. 66% said, I go for comfort in times of trouble. 59%, we're now down to number six on the list, is sermons. All right, I'm wrestling with that this week myself. Um, and then they go down the list. They want to be part of a community of faith and religious traditions. And I feel an obligation to go was 31%. I have been there, right? And what I think is beautiful about this is people are, are really honest. I think at the end of the day, we ask questions about why we show up on Sunday morning because we've talked about this. It's a less sacred space societally than it used to be. And Sunday, sometimes I dream about just going to brunch or sleeping in or doing all the things that my friends do on Sunday mornings. So the question I want to answer in the next month is why does Paul say it's worth it to show up? Why does Paul say joining a local church, and let's be honest here, not just show up, be a part of the fabric of the community of saints that gather together and declare that Jesus is worth all the things that we do. Why is it worth it? What's the purpose Because we talk a lot about, and we did in Daniel, God's influence in our community if we live out his culture. This one is specifically, what do you take home to your family? What do you take home personally? Why? What influence does God want to have on you from being us? It's a beautiful passage. So we're going to spend today in the first two verses of Colossians. It's Paul's introduction to the church because he's never met this church and they've never met him. And what he's going to do is he's going to say, hey guys, this is who I am, FYI, just in case you didn't know. This is who you are, FYI, just in case you didn't know. And this is why I'm writing to you. But before we get into our text this morning, we're going to do what we do at Crossroads every single Sunday. We come together. We have two goals on Sunday mornings. We want to know more about God. And by know more about God, we mean literally we want to read the scripture that defines his character and learn more about who he is and accept that as truth when seemingly that doesn't seem to be true sometimes. We want to read the Bible and remind ourselves of the character of God that we know to be good. And then two, we want to experience God. It's a different kind of knowing. It fills out the Hebrew idea of what fully knowing means, which means you can't actually know God unless you know about him and you feel the weight of his influence in your life. And so we want to know God and experience God this morning. And what that means is you show up today and we expect the Holy Spirit to do a work in you. We are not lazy listeners, but we talked about it last week. Discipleship is an active process. You join in as we do this together, even if I'm the one talking and you're the one listening. We ask how God is using his text, his character, his personness in shaping our souls. And so we're going to spend some time just getting ready for that. I'm going to ask, um, as I pray, that you take some time, a couple seconds, and just pray silently and ask the Spirit to do something this morning, that you might be encouraged and influenced as we gather together and open the Scriptures this morning. And I ask that you pray for me, that I do a good job today, um, and I accurately depict the character of God that we see in two whole verses of a letter that Paul wrote a couple thousand years ago. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can gather together, that the church is a it's a body, it's an organism, it's a living and breathing function of your goodness. It's, it's a place of influence. I pray as we read through a couple verses in Colossians this morning um, that we begin to see the influence of the church in our lives. That it becomes, as Paul talks about today, that it becomes an influencer in, in our day-to-day. And that we see the value in local communities, local bodies, gathering together and proclaiming Christ. So I'd ask... If you're comfortable, just take a a couple seconds and say a prayer to yourself and just ask the Holy Spirit this morning 
does something in your spirit as the word of the Lord is active today. I'd ask that you pray for me, that what I say might be good, accurate, edifying, so that we might fully know God this morning more than when we came in. We might know that he's good and we might see his grace abounding in our lives and in our world. pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. We're in it together. Colossians chapter one, we're going to be in verses one and two, and we're just going to walk through this word by word. And as concepts come up, we're going to stop down and talk about them. I'm a pretty linear person. This is how we're going to attack the text. So he starts by saying, he writes this letter to the small church in Colossae, and he says, from Paul, everybody, what I want to do is take a couple minutes and talk about who Paul is. And, and if you grew up in the church, you know who Paul is, but that's all right, it's worth talking about again. If you didn't know who Paul was and you came to this text, he has another name in the beginning of Acts. His name is Saul. And really what you have to know about Paul is the first time that we see Paul, we see a different person than they see writing this text. So in the book of Acts, the beginning of the church, Jesus says, I'm going to go, but they couldn't comprehend this, but I'm going to go and it's going to be better for you because I'm going to give you my spirit and my spirit's going to go with you and equip you and empower you. It is a grace that I'm leaving, even though they couldn't possibly fathom it that way. So they gathered together in a room, 120 of them upstairs in Jerusalem and they waited and they waited and they waited. And then finally the Holy Spirit came. It's what we know as the Pentecost. And then miraculous things started to happen in Acts 1 and 2 and 3. Peter, for example, who was afraid to admit that he knew Jesus when Jesus was being killed. You know the story. Three people said to him, hey, don't you live with, don't you follow, don't you, aren't you a disciple of that Jesus guy that's being beaten right now? And three times he said, no, I don't even know who that is. And the last time, in a mix of his guilt and his shame, he yelled at this person, I don't know who that is, get away from me. And it, it wrecked him, you know? And then Jesus comes back at the end of John in chapter 21, I think it is, and, and three times he says, hey, Peter, do you love me? It's this beautiful story of restoration. Peter, this guy that was too afraid to talk about Jesus publicly to his friends and family and countrymen, in Acts chapter 2 and 3 is the first one after the Spirit comes to get up, and he lays out this beautiful testimony of how the God of the Old Testament really was Jesus, and you should believe in him. Like, it's, it's insanely good. And 3,000 people come to faith. If you want to see the power of the Spirit in action, look at the life of Peter before and after the Spirit got there. That's the same Spirit that lives in us, goes before us, so the church started. And God said to the church in Acts 1.8, he gave a mission statement. He said, you're going to go into the world and share my goodness. That has been God's mission statement from the very beginning, from Adam to Noah to Israel to the new church. You're going to go and share my goodness because my goodness, we talked about it last week, overflows always, every time, everywhere. They didn't do it. They stayed in Jerusalem because people don't like being uncomfortable (laughs) because they stayed with what they knew. And so, There's something called the diaspora that just means scattered. There's been a few of them in the scriptures and for Jewish people. And this happened with the church. And so in Acts chapter 7 and 8, there was a man named Stephen. He becomes known as the first martyr in church history. 
And so all the Christians are still in Jerusalem and they wouldn't go, they wouldn't go, they wouldn't go. And, and they, they gathered this guy, Stephen. And so God used persecution to allow them to go. They gathered this guy, Stephen, and they start to stone him to death because he's proclaiming another God that the Jewish people worshiped. He's saying Jesus is that God. They thought it was blasphemy. And this is when we first see Paul step on the scene. And I'll just read a couple from Acts 7. It says, when they, the religious leaders of the Jewish day in the first century, when they had driven um, him out of the city, they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is Paul. They continued to stone Stephen while he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he said this, he died. And Saul, this is Paul, agreed completely with killing him. They laid their robes before Saul, Paul, because he was the man in charge. He was saying, go forward with this stoning. And just so, we are on the same page. I know you probably know this. Stoning was not a pretty way to die. Stoning was a public way to die. They would gather you and they'd surround you and they'd put you in this, usually this smaller pit or something down. And they wouldn't pick up small rocks. They'd pick up big rocks and they'd heave them at your head. One after the other after the other. It was a horrible way to go. And the reason why they did that is because they stoned people when they wanted to stamp out a public display of rebellion. They stoned people so they could be seen and they'd leave you there. So what Saul is doing is he's leading a charge saying, if you defy our rules and our religion, this is going to be your end. And they stoned Stephen and Paul said, I completely agree with what's going on here. And that started a persecution for Christians that didn't stop until about the fourth century, about 300-ish. Then Rome got on board, then Nero got on board in the 60s. You saw this great persecution that spread the Christians all throughout the known world at the time. In Acts 8 verse 3, it says, Saul was trying to destroy the church, entering one house after another. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Here's the crazy part is when I think that Paul is writing to a church a long ways away in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, from Jerusalem, you know, probably the only reason why that church is there is because he started persecuting the church in the first place and it forced him to flee. <laughs> I love that he's probably the cause of why this church got planted because the people had to go somewhere else where they weren't being killed. And now he's writing from the other team saying, guys, this is who I am and this is what God has for you. And as he's writing this, he's in prison. This is one of the four prison epistles, prison letters that he writes with Philemon and Colossians and Philippians and Ephesians. So he's writing from prison for a problem that he probably had a hand in in the first place. And you got to understand, when Paul writes, there was a, there was a time when, when people didn't know who he was yet. They knew who Saul was and they knew that he killed Christians. Could you imagine without the value added of the internet without watching, you know, revival videos. If, if Saul showed up to your worship meeting and you'd heard about him. So, you know, the story most likely in Acts chapter nine, God says, I'm going to make you follow me and not this other thing. He shows up on the Damascus road and, and Saul sees the beauty of Jesus and converts. And then as the story keeps going, um, the Lord speaks to one of his followers. His name is Ananias. I'm going to read it to you. It's in Acts chapter nine. Ananias replied, um, so, so God said, hey, you're going to go meet this man named Saul. And Ananias had heard of Saul. He'd probably been afraid of Saul. And so like you and like me, Ananias' response to the Lord is, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. 
And here, he has authority from the chief priest to imprison all who call your name. So God says to Ananias, hey, go and greet my man. And he said, that can't be your man. I've heard of that man. I'm a little afraid. I'm going to have to say, maybe let's press pause, do a thorough background check like he works in Kidman somewhere, and then we'll proceed, you know? And God says to Ananias, go because this is my chosen man, my instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the people of Israel. Could you imagine if Paul shows up at your first or at a worship gathering, he's like, guys, I've switched teams. You know where we're going to start this meeting? Why doesn't everybody just close your eyes and bow your heads, right? I'm not the first one to put my head down. I'm doing the awkward stare prayer at that point. You know what I'm saying? I don't trust you yet. You've killed my friends. You look right here and let's pray together, all right? You bow your head, right? There's this place where Paul's re-identifying himself. He's redefining himself, and he is the man. He is the man that writes. And why I think it's important, why I think it's important, whether you've heard it or not, to remind ourselves of the story of Paul, because every time we tell a story where God changes somebody from something into something else, it reminds me that he can do that with me, in me and through me. I need to be reminded of that story. And Paul is one of the highlighting examples of the power of God to change people through his spirit. And so he says to the Colossians from Paul, and he says, hey guys, I'm not what I was before. Look at the next few words. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. That word apostle there means a couple different things. There was really two primary meetings for the word apostle in the New Testament. It, it, the word there literally in the Greek just means to be sent out or the one who is sent. And, and there's two different ways that, that it's referred to in the New Testament. The first one is, is just simply, I'm an apostle, I'm a sent out one from God. We see it referred to about 25 different people in the New Testament. From the 12 disciples to Bartholomew to Matthias to some different men and women that started churches in Rome. But when Paul claims apostolic authority, which is what he's doing here, he's saying there's a hierarchy of level of authority that I have over you. And there's really three primary factors or hurdles, if you want to say, that you had to clear to, to claim apostolic authority. And the first one is simply that you had to see Jesus in person. Acts 6 verse, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Apostles also, the group of apostles that saw and walked with Jesus, they also had more authority than the other apostles. We see in Acts 6, the 12 summoned their full number of disciples and said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They weren't saying being a waiter is bad. They were saying we're called to a different good that's needed right now. Because you've got to understand, they didn't have the New Testament, and they were the only ones that interacted with Jesus on a day-to-day level. People needed to know what they knew about God. And God divinely enabled them to talk about who Jesus was and to write about who Jesus was. And the last thing that apostles did that made them uh, a higher level of apostle, essentially, that we're talking about is they, they did signs and wonders that we see with the first church, Acts 2.43, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. There was a hierarchy of order, and so what Paul's doing when he says, I'm Paul, an apostle of God, what he's doing is he's establishing the reason why they should listen to him. Because Colossae is in between two larger cities, two trade hubs. There's this road that was dying, uh, which made their city die. And so there's a lot of different beliefs about how to follow Jesus. In the first church, you get this in most of the letters. 
So trying to figure out how to follow God, and they don't know what's right and wrong. And what you see is a little bit of other religions filter into their extension of worship of Jesus. And if other religions filter in to compliment Jesus, Jesus is no longer good enough. And so a lot of Paul's letters are, stop it, Jesus is good enough. So in the second chapter, which we're not going to get to, but in the second chapter, Paul talks about why Jesus is good enough. That's why he lays out the supremacy of Christ at the end of chapter 1. He says, there's all these other stuff that you can believe in, don't. And so what Paul's doing is essentially saying, this is why you should listen to me. I am an apostle, big A, the guy you should listen to. I have seen Jesus. I've been specifically called to be his person to the Gentiles, and that's you. And on top of that, I got signs and wonders to back it up. Listen to what I have to say. He's establishing his authority. He's not just somebody else saying, I think this is how it should go. He's saying, God told me this is how it should go. And so, Paul says that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, by the will of God. And I love this. Because this is what Paul does really well in his writings. Paul's an interesting, you know, figure in the New Testament. Like I said, he's this juxtaposed, seemingly night and day, cardboard testimony, different kind of person, you know? You see this guy that beat up Christians, this guy that became one of them. And, and Paul also at the same time is this, Beautiful depiction of the two sides of the grace coin. One, knowing that you need it. Two, believing that you don't at the same time. So he said, I I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says, by the will of God. Just so nobody gets confused. Because if you know Paul's history, you know that he was probably the best and brightest in his class and in his group. Paul was smarter than you. He had more affluence than you. He did better at his job than you. And he makes that known. He talks about himself in Philippians 3. And he says in Philippians 3, if someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. And then he lists, he lists out the reason why he's bigger, faster, and stronger than everybody else. I have a feeling this is the guy that didn't play well at parties with others. You know, like, oh, that guy's here. He just talks about himself a lot. But, but realistically, in that list in Philippians 3, he talks about how he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, born in the best family. He was smarter than everybody. He studied the most and got the best grades, essentially. Paul says, if anybody could put merit in themselves to be an apostle of God, I could, but I didn't do it by myself. I did it, why? By the will of God. This beautiful moment when God literally chose Paul. Not because of anything he did, because everything he did pointed against the God of the scriptures and against the person and work of Jesus. But, but God stepped in and literally chose Paul. And he did that, I think, So nobody could look at him and be like, yeah, that's who I would choose if I was God. That makes the most sense. God doesn't have a religious draft where he drafts the ones that are the holiest and the best and the brightest. God uses the ones that people say can't be used because it shows his majesty and goodness and power. It's this beautiful depiction of what grace is. So we sit down and we stop and we study Paul because Paul shows us the power of grace. But he doesn't stop there. He talks about himself like that. And then look at verse 2. Look at who he writes to. It's one of my favorite descriptions. Paul uses it a lot in his introductions to the other churches. He says, to the saints, the faithful. I love this idea that he calls the people he's writing to saints. And and we're going to talk about this for uh, a little bit this morning. So let's get something out of the way. When we see or hear the word saint, sometimes because of our baggage we bring into the text, I I naturally think about a Catholic, like, I mean, a Catholic... um, ideology of what a saint is. I think a really good version of a Catholic. 
So if you're a saint in the Catholic Church, you were one of the best Catholics there was, period. And they recognize you for that. When I think saint, I think they're one of the best versions of whatever they do, unless they're New Orleans saint. But that's something else that we're going to prove tonight. Go Cowboys. I think... Um, that's a cheap shot there, but I'm not above cheap shots, everybody. When we hear the word saint, we think like they're better at their job. They're better versions of Christians. Let's get something out of the way. When Paul writes to the people in Colossae, this small church there, he doesn't say, I'm writing this to the saints among the Christians. He uses saints there to define the totality of the people that believe in Jesus. He uses saints to talk about all of them. People that followed Jesus from the beginning or just started following him two, three, four hours ago. And it brings up a really interesting conversation about as Christians, how we see and identify ourselves. So as I'm going to try to thread this needle here pretty good, but here's something that I think we've fallen into that isn't necessarily true. You are not, you are not a sinner saved by grace. Let's get something out of the way. You are not a sinner saved by grace. And what I mean by that is not to say that you are not a sinner, <laughs> The Bible makes it abundantly clear. It doesn't back away from the terminology that you're a sinner. And if we need to define sinner, it's just things that go against the ways and rhythms of God that bring brokenness into our world. It means you messed up. Over 300 times in the Bible, over 300 times in the Bible, it uses the word sinner to reference people. The Bible does not shy away from saying that we as people, all of us has gone astray. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's the deal. The Bible absolutely calls us sinners. I lean towards a theology called the total depravity of man, which, which essentially means that God didn't save you because you brought something to the table. You could bring nothing salvific to the table for God to love you. That's what grace is. And so I know and trust and believe that I am, was a sinner. But here's the problem. As Christians, if we walk around telling people that we are sinners saved by grace and we stop talking at that moment, we tell half the story. If we tell people that we're sinners saved by grace, we stop talking and we don't tell the whole story of salvation that we see in the scriptures. Because Ephesians 2, as Paul writes to his other friends in Ephesus still in prison, says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast. And then he goes on to say that you're a masterpiece. So you're a sinner or a masterpiece? Are you God's work of redemption in one person or are you not? Are you a sinner or a saint? We have this tension in our text and it really goes back to identity. Here's one thing I love about the scripture about following Jesus is that when I follow Jesus, it means that my actions don't necessarily represent my identity all the time and that's beautiful. That's grace. That my actions don't define who I am. I need that because guess what guys? I'm a, I'm a sinner, <laughs> I am a broken person. So the scripture paints this picture, this tension between sinner and saint. I think when we talk about the idea of sinner and saint in the scripture, we have to wrestle with the fact that if we only call ourselves sinners, and that's not a full picture of the gospel, because here's when I read the scripture, I start in Genesis 1, with our identity being in God, for God, so that people might see God's goodness. And here's the deal. Our identity was established well before our rebellion in Genesis 3. So when we talk about ourselves in light of who we are, Paul goes to the Christians at this place in Colossae and says, you are saints. He does it in his other letters too in 1 Corinthians 1 to the church of God that's in Corinth. 
to those sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He says in Ephesians 2, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. One pastor said it like this, sinner explains some of what you do, but saints explains the totality of who you are. Sinner explains your occasional activity. Saint defines your constant identity. Trevin Wax is a writer. He says, the Christian is not defined by the sins of the past nor the struggle of the present, but by the vision of the future. It's sanctification 101, the idea of looking more like Jesus. As followers of Jesus, what I believe is that my status before God is as a saint and I get to live into that. And there will be a day, there will be a day when I sin no more. It's the beauty and hope of Jesus. So what I do all the time now doesn't define who I am because we are a culture, and this is where the tension comes in with how we live. We are a culture that defines people by what they do. And that's not necessarily bad. We define people by what they do. You know it because you've met new people. What's the first question you ask? What's your name? What's the second question you ask? What do you do? You'd lead with the second question if it wasn't rude because you have to pretend to listen to their name first, you know? And so we always say, hey, this is who you are, but really, what do you do? And that's the most important one. And then you say a thing like you're an accountant or you're a bookkeeper or you're a pastor. And I don't need to go any farther. I know all about you, you know, which is not true, but it's what we do. Most times when I tell people I'm a pastor, if they've known me for longer than three or four minutes, they look at me and they thought I said that wrong. <laughs> really? You know, and I say, yeah, I'm a pastor. I say, but, but seriously. <laughs> and, then, and then my favorite is say, what church? Like I'm driving around the city that's in, you know, it's one of my favorite things to do. We are a people that, that like to define each other by what we do, but that's not what the Bible does. Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy to the calling to which you've been called, is what it says. Because we have to acknowledge that the way we think about ourselves shapes our actions. How you think about you changes how you act. A couple of economists got together, one writer and one economist, a guy named David Brooks, he wrote a book called The Social Animal. And, and he, I'll just read this, he did a study. Um, he said that they did a study where they asked test subjects to read a series of words that vaguely related to being elderly. Bingo, Florida, ancient. <laughs> Love that Florida was in there. He said when they left the room, they literally walked more slowly than when they came in, right? <laughs> Love that. Somebody's going to go around the church just yelling Florida all the time to the kids running. It's not going to affect any change. Malcolm Gladwell's an economist, and he writes about this same thing. It's called priming behaviors or priming thoughts. And he actually did another test where they used words that were one of two sets. The words were either in one of two sets. Uh, one of the sets was aggressive, rude, disturb, infringe, or another set of words like respect, considerate, patiently, and courteous. They did a sentence completion exercise where participants were asked to walk down the hall to another office and get their next assignment. So they stuck these people in a room and they had one group that had aggressive language and one group that had kind language. And these were New Yorkers, by the way. And, and they said, you're going to read these words and you're going to fill in the blank with these words. You're going to write them down. And then at the end of that, you're going to walk down the hall and there's a guy there with a clipboard and you're going to talk to him. And the whole point of the study was this guy with the clipboard was supposed to ignore these people and they were going to see how long it took these people to interrupt. New Yorkers, everybody, okay? And this is what the study did. It said, um, 
the, the experiment was um, looking to have the people see when they were interrupt. It said that the rude group interrupted after five minutes on average. However, the overwhelming majority, 82% of the polite group never interrupted at all, waiting a full 10 minutes that they had arranged in advance by the study. So the study had to stop them to say, hey man, you're supposed to interrupt me, right? All because 10 minutes before they had to fill in the blank with these words that seemingly were aggressive or passive, rude or kind. My point here is simply that we, our actions are shaped and formed by who we think we are. And if we keep going around telling people that we're sinners, sometimes it gives us freedom to live into sin. And that's not what God, God calls us into. Sin explains what we do, but sin explains who we are, and knowing who we are will allow us to stop what we do. I love that. Jesus is calling to us to live into something. There's a seminary professor and a New Testament theologian named Richard Hayes. He wrote something called the moral vision of the New Testament, and essentially what he says is that the New Testament ethic is, quote, be who you are now. The Bible uses the word sinner 300 times to talk about people out of that, the overwhelming majority, I think it's like 297, are always talking about people that don't know God at all. When God talks about his people over 200 times, he uses words like holy, righteous, blameless, saint. Because if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The idea of how we talk about ourselves matters. So we're not simply sinners saved by grace anymore. That's who we were, not who we are now. The way we talk about each other matters. Paul writes these people and says, guys, you, my saints that are faithful. They didn't know what they were doing yet. And he says, my saints that are faithful. Kierkegaard's a philosopher, one of my favorites. And he says, God creates out of nothing. Wonderful, you say? Yes, to be sure. But he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. And then here's the why at the end of that. It says, from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So he says, you're saints. And then he goes back and says, by the way, just so you don't get mixed up either, I got called to be an apostle because God is good and you are called saints because because God is good in Christ. Because really when you stop down and talk about how we define saint and and to go back to the Catholic version of saint, (laughs) there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through to be a saint in the Catholic church. You have to die. Uh, You have to wait a minimum of five years. There's one Catholic saint I read about. His name is Saint Beattie, I believe it was. He's a theologian. He died in 735. It took him 1,164 years to be recognized as a saint. All right? (laughs) That is a long time to wait. You had to show that you had influence. You had to perform two miracles after you were dead. There are all these things you have to do. What Paul says is, guess what? Do you know what a saint is in the family of Jesus? Being in Jesus. It's not what you did. It's who he is. And this is kind of Paul's hearkening cry as he writes his epistles. The expressions in Christ, in the Lord, and in him occur 164 times in the letters of Paul alone. He's making the case that they know that they are now redefined and it's not because of what they did, it's because of who Jesus is. One commentator says, Paul's perception of his whole life as a Christian, its source, its identity, and its responsibilities could be summed up in these phrases, in Christ, in the Lord, and in him. What he's doing at the end of this, what I love about what he's doing, is he's reminding the church of why as he gets started telling them what they need to know about Jesus and about their faith. Because he says, I'm an apostle, 
And I can only attribute God to that. And you're a saint. And you can only attribute that to God. He's reminding them that the why really matters. When I, years ago, I hired a communication person here. And he was my intern, my first one actually. Um, and I said, hey, write, write email for me. And we had some kind of student kickoff thing. I don't remember. There was probably hot dogs involved. And so I said, write an email. We're going to send to parents. And so he wrote an email. And it was, it was a train wreck. Um, it, was, it was a disaster. And I, I'm working on being a little more kind in how I speak. I belong as a New Yorker. I'm not one. But like in my heart and soul, I want to be one, you know? And so I said, let's slow down a little bit. Let's go back. Um, we're not going to send this out. And he said, why? I said, because it doesn't communicate why we gather together. It just says there's hot dogs show up, you know? And what I love about what Paul does, what I think the church should do more, we say on staff a lot is don't give me the what without giving me the why. Tell me why I follow Jesus, the what follows. Tell me why we want to walk in the ways of Christ, the what follows. Paul says, here's the why all this has happened because of Jesus. And then out of that, might that push you towards a rhythm in life of Jesus? Because we follow and we obey because we understand the why, not because simply of the what. That burns out over time. And so we come together and we say we live into the ways and rhythms of Christ because he's good. So for example, we have a tailgate happening next weekend. And it's not simply the what of join together so we can watch the Cowboys. It's why we want to watch God's team that's worshipful, okay? <laughs> it matters. It's worshipful. I'm going to take all those shots in the next couple of weeks because you have no idea. We are 3-0 and and I am giddy about it. I got to enjoy this while it lasts. But really what Paul does at the beginning of this, he's talking about the different points of, of the church and what it's good for. And I think the first influence we see of the people as they gather together is simply, you know what binds us together? Me, Paul, an upper elite Roman citizen that's kind of a trailblazer in the faith, writing to you guys who I've never met that are pretty small in my pecking order. We're in commentator. We talk about it next week. So this is by far, by far, um, the smallest, most not worthy church that he writes a letter to. What binds them together is their common need for grace. What he's saying is about you feel that influence. There's a story I read about, I don't know why, but I have an affinity for reading stories about animal attacks in the woods. Can't tell you why. And I read about one a couple weeks ago, um, and I think it was in Banff, up around the northern Rockies in Canada, and there was a wolf, a wolf that attacked a family in a tent. I don't know if you guys read about this. I read the whole thing. I listened to some things about it. Couldn't get enough. Probably during work hours. I am sorry, right? And uh, literally, so it says there's these family camping. And in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, and, and this has happened maybe twice in the last 40 years, where a wolf just attacks a person. This wolf pounced on this tent. And there's a dad, a mom, and two boys that are eight or seven or nine, not able fully. They're not at their fighting weight yet. You know what I'm talking about? And this wolf attacks and it said at the end that he was sickly and he was probably close to death and so he did some things wolves normally don't do. And so naturally, they're screaming, lots and lots of screaming. And, and the wolf had the dad by the arm. And the dad was just trying to protect his family. He said that the mom jumped on top of the boys and the dad then jumped on top of the mom and the wolf was trying to attack whatever he could get and trying to drag the dad out. I promise this ends happy, not sad. I wouldn't do that at the end of a sermon, everybody. Um, and there was this other tent 100 yards away, this guy that they didn't know. And this guy said he heard, hears his scream. So he sticks his head out of his tent and he looks and he sees this wolf dragging this grown man out of the tent. And he said, and this is probably what separates him from me, maybe, he said, so I just ran as fast as I could towards the wolf and then I got up to it and I kicked it. And he said at that point, 
the wolf let go of the guy's arm, turned and looked at me, and this guy, quote, said, that's when I realized I made a mistake. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> at that point, the woman and children ran and got in his car about 100 yards away, and he said, it's just this wolf and these two men, and this man has half his arm gone, and so they are just looking at this wolf, and they're throwing rocks, and they're making big, big noise, and they're like, what are we going to do? This thing's coming after us, and here's where the story gets good. The wolf actually backs up and retreats and goes away, and they found it uh, later the next day, and they, and they put it down. But the point of the story is that they interviewed the mom, and they said, did you know this guy? And the mom said, no, I had no idea who this guy was. And they said, do you think that you'll keep in contact with him? And she said, I think we'll be forever linked for the rest of our lives. You don't share an experience like that and not be bound together. Paul's saying, we share in such a great experience that is grace. Look what it's done for me. Look what it's done for you. Let me write you and tell you that God is good. The influence of grace is what binds us together as the people of God. And in worlds and societies that try to rip us apart, <laughs> that try to tell us how different we are. Indifference is good. It celebrates diversity that God created but we do have something in common. It's our need for and the extravagant power behind God's grace. That's something every time we come together, we get to celebrate. So Paul says, this is who I am and, and this is who you are. And then he ends it by saying, grace and peace to you from God our Father. He ends it by saying, grace and peace to you from God our Father. May you understand the influence of grace in your community, and we don't have time to get into it, but that word peace there is a whole theology of shalom in the Old Testament. That word peace there literally means that God's good ruling order might be restored. That word peace there means as you understand the grace of God and live into the ways of God, his order is rightfully reestablished in our world. That word peace there means may God's rhythms and ways go before you to establish my goodness. It's beautiful. And it starts because we all understand the influence of grace. So, as the church and why we come together, each and every week I hope, I hope, I hope and pray that you are influenced by this place as God uses it, by whatever church you've grown up in and gone to. And I pray that one of those influences for you and your family as you parent and as you lead and as you live is the overwhelming beauty of the influence of grace that God gives to us. Might we go and know that's the kind of God that we worship? This is how Paul says hello to people. It's way better than when I get up here and say, how are we doing today? I'm gonna work on that, all right? Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for who you are. You're a good God that you give grace that naturally we don't deserve. I'm thankful that as we understand more and more how deep your grace is, that it comes through Christ alone, that that presses us into living out your peace in our world. I, I pray that it influences us, that it gives us an overwhelming awe for who you are and how you chose to save and that you include us in that process. So why we leave today with a better understanding of your grace and appreciation of it so that we know that we're bound together by something bigger than ourselves, the person and work of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.